And welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. The world watched in horror last weekend as Russian artillery pummeled the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol in violation of a ceasefire set up to allow civilians to escape. And more ceasefires have gone unheeded as the conflict enters its third week. Every day, frightened and desperate men, women and children continue to stream out of Ukrainian towns and cities, their future uncertain. The number of refugees passed the one and a half million mark in the first 10 days after the invasion, and heartbreaking images and stories continue to dominate international news. Holly Penalva is a paediatric nurse and founder and CEO of Indigo Volunteers. Her charity helps to coordinate the grassroots refugee response in Europe and matches volunteers to organisations which provide vital support to refugees fleeing their homeland. Holly founded the charity 10 years ago in response to steep fees, dubious marketing practices and questionable projects she encountered herself whilst volunteering abroad. The charity has been in the field for the last five years and has placed more than 1,800 volunteers in more than 80 partner projects along the refugee route. Holly, thanks for making time to meet today. Your phone must be ringing off the hook and I imagine your inbox absolutely full following the invasion. It is indeed. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. It's a real honour to be here and sharing all the things that we've been learning from the ground and about Indigo. It's just really great. My phone is absolutely off the hook and same with the inbox, but it's amazing to see the response from people, like how many people want to help. And actually that's got to be a good thing, right? If my phone's going crazy, the public response to this has been incredible. It's been so supportive for the Ukrainians and especially locally at the borders and people hosting families in their houses and people from the UK and other countries wanting to help as well. As a charity, Holly, and the story is so big, where do you begin and where do you work out where you can make the difference? Yeah, that's a really great question because it's really quite overwhelming. And I think most people are finding it overwhelming, even the aid agencies on the ground now. And it takes time to figure these things out. Where are the gaps? What's most needed? And of course, sometimes you just have to get going and you learn along the way, but it's really overwhelming. And you don't know also how the host countries are going to respond. And from what we've seen so far, the bordering countries by and large are being absolutely incredible. We've been working in other countries for over six years, actually, in Greece. And they also generally responded really well. Like the Greek people that I've met, they're just so lovely and welcoming. But of course, it does differ a little bit depending on whereabouts in the area in each country. And I've also lived and worked in Serbia and Bosnia. And it does change ever so slightly. But on the whole, when it's one person to another, people are so, so kind. I've seen people that have actually said to me, I don't like refugees and saying I'm a bit racist, but then they'll come along with a bag of sweets for the children. Like when people meet each other in person, it does seem to put a face to things. So I think the countries have been responding amazingly. And you then as an agency or a, a grassroots initiative, just fill the gaps wherever they are, where locals can't respond or local organisations don't have the resources. 
So explain to us, Holly, where the gaps are that you've identified and what Indigo is doing at the minute. Yeah, our primary activity usually is volunteer coordination. So we've been working in Greece, Serbia, Bosnia and France for a number of years and we coordinate volunteers to grassroots partners and they can be doing anything from healthcare, education, language, classes, workshops, all kinds of things, legal support. And they request us the volunteers that they need and we go to our database and we share on our social media and people apply and we match them. Because of the network that we've grown and the number of partners that we have and the connections that we've made over the months and years, we really want to utilise that network. So actually what we've also started doing for a number of years is connecting humanitarian workers with therapists, for example, because it's a really big thing that mental health is not looked after so well in the humanitarian sector. So that's one of the projects we've been working on. Or there might be a trainer that comes out and says, I want to help. And instead of going to one organisation, if they come to us, we can share it with our whole network and say, hey, if you're in this area or if it's online, anyone can join in. So it's just sharing and networking and just trying to utilise resources as best as possible. How I see what's happening right now, and obviously things can change by the hour in this situation, is we're kind of flipping ourselves on our head a little bit and doing more of the coordination and connections right now. And then volunteers are going to be needed later down the road because there's been such a strong volunteer response that actually grassroots partners on the ground and other organisations have said to us we're okay for volunteers right now or maybe there's some specialist skills needed but we actually have a need connecting with this organisation or someone that can get this aid or actually we've got too much aid do you know where we can send it or redirect it so actually the coordination side is something we're going to be focusing on a bit more there. And one of your board members, Ed, has already been to the Ukrainian border, hasn't he? Tell me about Ed's experience. Ed deserves his own podcast. He is amazing. He has an army background and he knows in these situations the kind of medical equipment that's needed. And so immediately he started a fundraiser to collect really vital medical equipment and he took it over to the Polish border and got it into Ukraine and some for press, some protective equipment for press, which is amazing. And he's continuing to do the fundraiser and he's going out again I think today or tomorrow to do the exact same thing. He also, we're so lucky with our board, they are a sensational group and he's actually travelled from the border of Syria to Greece disguised as a refugee so he experienced the journey. We've actually got quite a few board members that have volunteered either through Indigo or independently in the refugee context so I'm lucky to have so much support from people who really understand the context rather than someone just saying well why can't this happen? They understand why something can't happen because they've been there and they've done that. What did Ed tell you about that experience and being disguised and his whole journey? Actually, he doesn't share too much does about it yet. Well, I'm sure under special circumstances he does, but he hasn't gone into great detail about it with me other than, of course, it was life-changing in many ways, the amount he learnt. And it's something you can't imagine anyone doing that journey. And it's the closest you can get to imagining it because he did it, but also knowing that he doesn't have to end up in a refugee camp. That's the only difference, I suppose. But I'm sure he might share it with you. It sounds like it was probably quite an emotional journey and maybe that's possibly why he hasn't necessarily talked much about it yet. And I love the fact that he's got his head down into fundraising that he's going out again. And do you have a team going out as well, Holly? Yes, we have two team members on the ground right now and they've just been to the Polish and Slovakian borders to gather information. And I think what's important is it's not just about an emergency response right now. Of course, we can support with this and of course, we get involved with this. But 
what I've seen before, and it's not to say this is going to happen again necessarily, but from my experience, there's this emergency rush to help. And unfortunately, once the next thing happens, many organisations leave, of course, because they have to deal with the next emergency. And I understand that and resources aren't unlimited. So I really understand this decision making, but it does leave these huge gaps. And that's where a lot of grassroots organisations have remained like us and our partners. And so we've got to be thinking about the mid to long term as well. So although it's really important to think what can we do right now it's also we really must keep in mind okay but giving our best prediction of what's likely to happen where can we add most value and where can groups add most value in the coming months or years if this continues which obviously we hope it doesn't but you have to plan and think of the likelihoods that it might. Are you right? Last week, we featured Shabnam Dauran, an Afghan refugee who Convex is helping to set up a new life here. And I passed a poster about Afghan refugees today. And I thought, gosh, the world has moved on at the minute to the Ukraine. So I can completely understand yeah. what you mean. We're very early on as we go to air with our podcast a couple of weeks since Russia invaded. What are your, not predictions, Holly, that's the wrong word, mm. but what's your sense? And do you think this is a crisis that we are going to be dealing with over months and years in terms of displaced people and refugees? Unfortunately, yes, it's quite likely. And even if people wanted to return home and it was safe to do so, of course, so many homes have been destroyed. That isn't possible anyway. It's just by how things are going. My guess would be that it's not going to come to a peaceful resolution in the very near future. So it's something that we really are planning for the mid to long term. And it's interesting, we're getting so many people asking how they can help now because everyone wants to do something, of course, like everyone has got itchy feet and collecting aid and donations and the intent is so good. But like you say, people have moved on. And so one of the things that we're actually saying, although it sounds really counterintuitive for our charity, is don't turn up independently or gather aid independently without coordinating it with a group on the ground or via us. But please, if you do have time and want to help and you really want to volunteer and you can't find a group on the ground that needs you, then we've got 50 partners across Greece, Serbia, Bosnia and France that all really need support and really need volunteers. And because it's not so much in the media anymore, even my close friends and family are still asking, are boats arriving? And I fully understand why people are asking because it's not in the news so much. And they don't know that boats are still turning up onto the hotspot islands in Greece and our partners still need volunteers. So we're kind of asking people to consider volunteering in those refugee camps and with those partners for now and as and when volunteers are needed on the ground in the bordering countries of Ukraine then of course we'll share that and we'll put out a big call out to volunteers then. In the 10 years that you've been involved and set up your own charity, have we ever seen anything unfold as quickly as this in terms of the humanitarian crisis, the speed of it? The figures change every day. I said more than 1.5 million refugees in the introduction. That was at the 10-day mark. Mm. That figure's increasing rapidly. What is the scale, do you think, Holly, of the humanitarian crisis, kind of as it stands today? And as this goes out, we're sort of two weeks in. It's really happening fast, for sure. And I think in terms of your Europe. This is the most fast paced since World War II. And I think a lot of people also aren't aware, of course, for example, with Syria, there's millions of people been displaced and so many end up in bordering countries and not in Europe. And I think that via the media, people don't realise that. I think that the media can sometimes portray that so many people end up in Europe. And actually, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's something in the 80 something percent actually stay in bordering countries and don't come to Europe or anywhere near Europe. So most people just go to the neighbouring countries. And then for various reasons, some may want to travel further afield. So there have been, of course, other conflicts and wars which have meant 
millions of people are displaced, but not something that we've seen like this in Europe for a long time. I can't imagine what it's like to walk away from your home, your family, your friends with everything in a small bag, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, whether you're going to make it. And my children who are 18 and almost 13 are really struggling to comprehend what's happening. You've seen this firsthand. How can we get an understanding of what these people are going through? Oh, I don't know if you can unless you've experienced it. You know, it reminds me of something because I'm also a pediatric nurse, like you mentioned. And so many people, when I say that, respond with, I don't think I could do that job. And I always think or reply with, you could if you had to, because actually, if you're put in a position where there's a child and they need some help, you will do it. And I think it's a similar thing. Of course, people think I couldn't do this. But when you're forced into such a situation, I think most or all people, they just deal with it and maybe go a bit into autopilot. And that's, of course, where trauma can come in and shock and so on. But you just do it. If you have to grab some things and leave for your life, you do it. I'm quite friendly with a lot of refugees and they also reflect and say, I don't know how I did that, but they did. And I think the human spirit and the human will is so strong that you just do it, but I don't think you can understand it unless you've been through it. And even people that have been through it still don't understand it. That's a very, very good answer to that. And when did you encounter your first refugees, Holly? And how did you cope with the emotion of what they're going through? How do you not put the blinkers on, because I'm Mm. sure you feel the emotion, but how do you deal with that emotion yourself and not just be broken every night when you go to bed, when you've seen people in such poor conditions and struggling? It can be hard, but mostly... I think because I'm taking action and doing something, it counters that somehow largely. And again, it's the same with nursing. Sometimes when I first started, I thought, my gosh, how on earth are people dealing with these situations? But then I just immediately kind of took this attitude of, well, if I wasn't here, then they wouldn't be getting my help today. And I am here. So this is the thing that I can do to support them. And it's kind of the same with refugee work. And one of my first memories of breaking down, luckily I was able to leave before anyone saw me. I was in a camp in Northern Greece. And at Indigo, because we're doing lots of coordination work, we don't have the capacity to spend lots of time volunteering with partners and things. But every now and again, we're able to, which is brilliant. And I was supporting with an English language class and it was just some wooden pallets and like a tent structure and a whiteboard or a blackboard. And the people in the class, it was for older people and they were in their 50s or 60s and maybe even 70s. And they were just sitting on the floor learning the English alphabet, having at that point not speaking a word of English. And it just made me extremely upset because I just, thought, could I imagine my mum going to Syria and sitting like they are and learning Arabic? No, I couldn't. And it broke my heart. And luckily I did hopefully a smooth exit and the other teacher carried on. So it does get to me, it gets to everyone. Everyone working in this context has these types of experiences from time to time. But as I say, I think because you're taking action, you just, well, I feel a bit more stronger with it. I don't want to say you get used to it, but you know what to expect. Your expectations are managed when you go into a camp, you're not shocked when it's the third, fourth, fifth camp you've seen, you know what to expect, which also helps. And I'm also sure that there's a lot of warmth and gratitude that comes from the people you're helping. They must be very pleased to have people like you there. 
Yeah, of course. And often so grateful. And even if they don't act grateful, who cares? You've no idea what's going on in their day. So I never mind. When I was working in Samos for quite a while, I was in an apartment and I heard something beneath and I looked out the window and it was about one in the morning or something. I saw these feet in sandals and it's cold. Like Greece can be so cold in wintertime. And I saw these feet in flip-flops and the rest of the body was like hidden under the building. And so I went down to just give a blanket, knowing it would be someone from the camp that for some reason wasn't there. And I said, would you like some food? And he said, no, most people people refuse first time when you offer help. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just take it and then leave it on the side. So I brought him down some water at first and then I brought him down some food. And then when I went down to, to check if everything was okay, he was eating it. He was clearly very hungry. And I said, is everything okay? And he said, it could do with some more salt. <laughs> And I thought, that is so great. I'm so pleased you told me and gave me that feedback. The people too and just have these opinions. I just thought that was so funny. So lovely. It made me sad when you said some people being racist about refugees. Refugees are the same as you and I, aren't they? But minus their home. Exactly. We have so much more in common as humans than we do that separates us. I always think it's funny when I hear these stories from refugees just saying, oh gosh, my uncle's so embarrassing. Parents wanting their children to do well in school. We have absolutely like 99% the same. And I think it's partly media is not helpful in this situation a lot of the time. Of course, they can also share really great and positive stories, but they also can create divides as well. And politics doesn't help. And political decisions and policymaking can further divide things as well. So some of the stories I've seen and read about boats crossing the English Channel from France and being described as an influx or a wave. And it's like, it is no point, no, 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 one, you know, when you're talking about this boat of percent of refugees in the world. So the language used is really, well, ignorant and divisive, actually, a lot of the time. And I think the world needs to change. I think we need to do more as a country. I think we've only signed 300. Oh, it's disgraceful. 300, how many visas is it? 300? I thought it was 326 at the last yes, count. Yes, it's, so it's 300 or so visas, isn't yeah. it? And they're making it quite difficult from what I was reading this morning. Things are changing so rapidly, but from this morning, they're making it really difficult. You have to go to certain centres. I think you might have to provide a utility bill. I mean, who's got a utility bill on them when you're being bombed? No one grabs that necessarily. So I honestly don't understand why we make it so difficult. It is really silly, the decisions made in government sometimes. I think some of the stories are extraordinary. I looked at a photograph this morning of of civilian soldiers in the Ukraine getting married on the front line. Mm. I've never seen that before. Yeah, there are some really emotional stories and things happening. And when it's war, it speeds everything along. People make often very rash decisions and they obviously speed up their wedding in case anything happens to the men or there's lots of big decisions that can be made, some good, some bad. <laughs> but it's an extreme position to be in. And your brain, I think, just goes into this space where you make these decisions. But the people getting married, I think that's just so beautiful. But it also incredibly emotional to read and see. Absolutely. I think what's really struck me is the outpouring globally of kindness and generosity and a desire to help and none more so than Poland. Poland's welcomed more than a million refugees already and just reading in the papers you know they're arriving at a railway station with signs up saying you're safe here and given food blankets water medical supplies clothes a phone with a paid for sim in it what have you made of countries responses like Poland yeah it's how we all should be right I always think how would you feel if this was you and how would you want to be treated and there's so many thoughtful things I've seen like prams also left at train stations so when parents with their 
their babies get off the train and they've obviously had to leave their pram because they couldn't fit it on the absolutely packed train. They've got a pram for their babies. And I've seen just beautiful and really thoughtful things happening as well. Also, not just in Poland, Berlin, I saw some footage yesterday of people have made it into Berlin. Also people holding signs there, welcoming everyone. I think it's so lovely. It's a shame we're an island and that people can't make it as easily over to us so we can do the same. My teammates who are in Poland today have said that also at train stations and airports, there's so many families still there and it's really heartbreaking. So hopefully when they get somewhere and that's the response. It's what a great start. Although I don't want to sound pessimistic and I really hope that this maintains for as long as possible. But again, in my experience, generally the energy and positivity and support is so great at the start. But when resources start to deplete and energy starts to wear down, things can change. And, you know, someone might think I'll have a family in my house for a month and then a month goes by. And well, then what happens? And of course, they don't necessarily want to chuck someone out, but at the same time, don't necessarily have the resources themselves to keep hosting. So all these complications happen. So at the start, I think there's such a wonderful wave of help. And this is where and why groups tend to go in also later, not just at the beginning, because that's when resources are running down and when you need further international support, for example. We'll talk about some of the other projects you've been involved in around the world, including Greece in a minute. And exactly that point that once a story falls from the news, from the headlines, that's often when organisations like yours especially come into their own. But just following on from the kindness, it's also kindness from individuals. I was reading, I think it was in the Sunday Times about Arthur Smith. He's a mechanic from Kent. And he's got no experience in this world, but he's put together a team of NHS friends and army medics. And he's driving to the border to try and rescue 200 orphans. And I think, again, it's just an example, isn't it, of how many of us feel that we've got to get up and do something. I've had so many people calling me saying, should I just get a van and go and get aid? That so many people want to take action, which is beautiful. But actually, one of the key messages we're sharing at the moment is we're asking people to just consider pacing themselves because, of course, fully understand the want to do something right now. This might come in waves on the news. And if this dies down on the news for a while, which isn't kind of conceivable at the moment, but it might do. And that support is still going to be needed. I mean, there's still Syrian refugees in Greece that have been there for years and that's just not on the news anymore. And so then because of that, volunteer applications are less, funding is less and so on. But they still need help and we're still there to support. And that's my fear for this situation is that there's a huge influx of support now and it won't necessarily all be there in the future. So just consider it's okay if you want to do something now, but you can't work out what, that's fine because the help is very, very likely to be needed in the weeks and months to come. So you can just follow us, follow other charities that will share news and then you can support later down the line, but just pace yourself. That's <laughs> equally as important. Yeah. You describe your charity, Holly, as a small one with an excitable group of volunteers. <laughs> Tell me the story of why you started it in the first place and how yeah. it all began. Well, is it really that long ago? 15 years ago, I had an idea. <laughs> I finished university the first time I did a psychology degree to start with and wanted to volunteer a Abroad, and I found that the only way to do it was through paying huge fees through questionable companies to teach in a class somewhere in Tanzania. And I thought, okay, well, I have no teaching experience. This is thousands of pounds just in the fees alone sometimes, not even including flights or anything. And I thought, this doesn't feel right. And summarizing, I asked a lot of people and many people had a similar experience and they'd either not been able to volunteer because of the fees or they'd gone and they'd really questioned their experience. 
payments. And really, I think the big thing that I found was a lot of these fee charging companies aren't there for the communities. It's not led by community needs. It's actually the other way around where because companies are making money from volunteers, the more volunteers, the more money they'll make and they can just send them to communities. And there may be some benefits involved. I'm not saying it's all bad, but it's definitely not just from the grassroots here up. So I just had this idea of that doesn't make any sense to me. And surely it should just be community needs first and foremost and only. And so that's when I had the idea of Indigo. And then alongside that, I went back to study. I did a postgraduate in nursing, pediatric nursing. And the same thing happened where you can do a month abroad in your final year. And these companies came in, oh, you know, however many thousands of pounds you can do your final month in this place or that place. And I thought, gosh, no, this is just not right. So I researched a lot and I found a charity in Malawi and I contacted them and they accepted three nursing students. And when we got there, we found out that actually the health clinic had been closed with all these medicines because there was no one, there was not one health professional. I mean, it was a really remote fishing village. And so there were all these medicines, malaria treatment, pain relief, everything behind this locked door. And because they had no one to distribute it or with any health experience, people hadn't been able to access it. So as three student nurses, which is absolutely ridiculous, we were like running this clinic and then a local doctor did turn up and we worked with him and it was a brilliant experience. And it just showed how even as nursing students, the impact you can have. And then along the way, I met lots more communities and charities that were community-led and wanted support. And for one reason or another, it would be international support. We do a big appraisal on every partner that we have. And one of the questions is, why do you not have local volunteers or why do you need international support? And it's normally because the skill that they're looking for isn't available locally to them. So yeah, that's how we started. And then we just grew and I went back to some more countries and we onboarded more partners in East Africa and then India and then Mexico. And in 2016, with the refugee crisis, I was back and forth to Greece as well. And then the charity Help Refugees at the time, now called Choose Love, offered to fund me to stay there. And so, yeah, I did and uh, <laughs> and started coordinating volunteers there. And that was a lot more chaotic. Like that was a crazy time. Paint us a picture of what that was like, Holly, when yes. you're there. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working in this like very cold warehouse. Actually, I went there in December 2016 and it was one of those freak winters where it got to like minus 15, minus 20, which is awful. At least I had an apartment to go home to, although the days were very cold in this warehouse, where there were tents, you know, where refugees were sleeping in these tents. It was horrendous because the shelter at that time was not good. Even now isn't brilliant, but it's improved. And honestly, dozens and dozens of people turning up every day to help and it was almost no to no coordination. So then when we got there, we could actually find partners and say, okay, what are the needs that you have? And these volunteers that would turn up, we could direct them. So I'd give an induction and then we got a little bit more funding so I could get another coordinator. That was in Northern Greece. And a lot of people got stuck at the border there, refugees. And so lots of camps started there. And then we moved down to Athens and then the islands and then Serbia and Bosnia. And every time a similar story where just a lack of coordination was a really big thing and a lack of support for our partners. There's so many people that just like me, no formal training in how to run a charity at all. You just get thrown in the deep end and do it. And so what we try and do is just support as much as possible so they can contact us and say, hey, do you have a connection with a therapist? Or hey, do you have a connection with a professional development training or something? And we then can try and arrange that. Yeah, we try and support as much as we can given our capacity. Was it a steep learning curve as you grew the charity? Yeah, I have learned so much. And actually, I just had seven months of maternity leave recently. I actually, strangely, learned more then. It gave me the opportunity to 
consolidate all my learning because it's so fast paced and you never, never stop. And it's not easy to have a weekend off, especially if you're in the field working. I find it difficult personally to like have time to reflect and consolidate learning experiences. But on my maternity leave, I had all this time to have flashbacks of memories and think, oh gosh, how interesting. Why did I handle that that way? Or, oh, that's a good learning. Or, oh, that person did this this way. And I learned so much during that time. And are you still working as a paediatric nurse as well as running the charity? So when I was in Greece, I was doing one day a week with a medical NGO there that was giving healthcare to the camp in Samos and to the refugees living in the camp. And I really felt thrown in the deep end because I was also doing adult nursing, which I'm really not confident with. And I was doing triaging. And normally I work on the high dependency at Chelsea and Westminster in London. So you turn up and you get a handover and your patient is packaged up and you just know what to do. But these people were coming to me saying, hi, I've had a headache for three years. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. But obviously you learn very fast and I had the support of this amazing team. So I was doing some nursing then. I find it really difficult to fit in shifts, but I do try whenever I can to fit in some shifts. Yeah. And where do you think this caring, compassionate nature came from in the first place. I'm just kind of Mm. looking back at your childhood, who you were inspired by. I think my mum, she's so amazing. And we fostered children, I think about 13 in total. And so I grew up side by side. I was often the same age as them, seeing the kindness that my mum gave and the impact that had on these children. You know what? It's really strange. I often say like, I've seen people just kind of come out of the woodwork. They've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And they'll call my mum, even though they haven't spoken for five, 10 years, and they'll want her by their side. She's just one of those people. And I think just seeing her constantly doing stuff for other people, mostly me at the moment, because I'm so busy. She's looking after my son and making sure I'm eating, making sure I stop working at a certain time. So she's just always looking out for people. So I guess that's definitely been a massive influence. And as a new mum, Holly, and a paediatric nurse, how do we explain what's going on perhaps to our children. I think a lot of children are suffering from anxiety post-pandemic. The school's been disrupted. The pandemic was very frightening for children. And now youngsters of a certain age who watch the news and see these images and see particularly pictures of children, the ones that break my heart when you see a shelled building and you see a tiny child with a little bag and wrapped up from the cold. How can we protect our children? What do you think? I think reassuring is a really key thing because of course, depending on what children have seen, they're going to be very worried and you don't want children to feel anxiety and worry about this because that's for adults to do. (laughs) There are age appropriate materials that are online I've seen that maybe we can link somewhere. They're the best advice I can say is just following the the age appropriate things to do, which have been designed by charities and organisations that know psychologically what children at certain ages can handle and the information they should have. So I would just follow them and also just reassure your child. I don't believe in ignorance and pretending this isn't happening, but just explaining it in a way that doesn't overwhelm them. And I wonder as well, certainly for my children, I think it really helps when they actually feel they can do something and they can contribute. Just thinking back to the pandemic, we were shopping for, we have two neighbours who are in their 90s and Mm. Jack and I would get on our bikes and go and do their shopping. And I think that really helps when you feel that you can make however small difference Mm -hmm. that helps too doesn't it absolutely and it's all these small acts that lead to very great things you know you don't have to do a massive big thing like start a charity yourself or anything if everyone does these small things it amounts to something very big it does holly thank you so much for joining us today i wish you lots of luck with what you're trying to achieve and thank you i know you're running off to a funding meeting your diary is packed your phone as we said at the beginning is ringing off the hook emails are going crazy 
Will you keep us posted on developments? I absolutely will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And also maybe perhaps provide some links as well that we yeah. can pass on. You've been listening to Holly Panalva, founder and CEO of Indigo Volunteers, a small agile charity who are doing their part to support refugees across Europe, including the Ukrainian people fleeing the war now and in the long term. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another inspirational guest. Bye for now.